This is CliffCentral.com. Is this thing on? You're listening to The Bounce Show. It's live. Well, not this bit, but it's live on CliveCentral.com. Um, it's Cliff Central, Platt. <clears throat> Sorry, scrap that, delete it. CliffCentral.com. Just waking up in the morning, gotta thank God. I don't know, but today seems kind of odd. No barking from the dog. No good morning, good morning. Happy start to your week here on The Bounce Show with me, Ben Kopinski, and my star-studded host, a fantastic guest, Ice Cube, getting us started this week. We had a thug week on the Gareth Cliff Show all of last week. We found some absolute belter tracks, like just totally forgotten about through the 90s and turn of the century. Wow, so much. But anyway, you listen to a sports show, so you shall be getting sports stuff all day. Well, all hour, exactly. Massive weekend. The Lions are in the final Super Rugby. There was the PJ Championship, which was rain-affected, but dished up so much hot hot action. We've also got uh, this cricket, and there's F1, and there is Olympic stuff. So much to look, look forward to and talk about today. Dan from Conquer Sport has returned, and he has... Well, one of the more interesting topics that we could possibly think about, let alone discuss right here on the show. And then later on, once we get through everything, we've got Dennis Friedman from Australia trying to make sense of why his team is so completely and utterly cuck when playing test match cricket in Asia. I think it's eight or nine consecutive losses now. It's uh, it's not good. All of this after bowling Sri Lanka out for 119 in the first innings. Oh, so much to talk about, so much to be excited about. A little bit of ice cube, and then we get straight back into the headlines. With the show dog's house, they was watching your MTV raps. What's the haps on the craps? Shake them up, shake them up, shake them up, shake them. Roll them in a circle of homies and watch me break them with a seven. Seven eleven, seven eleven, seven even back door, little jump. Right, so let's start with some golf, right? It's, uh, well, it's the most recent of all stories because I only finished early hours of this morning. Now, I, unfortunately, because of my, my commitments on the morning show here on Cliff Central, I can't I possibly watch all the stuff in America. I'm buggered as it is at four in the morning. Anyway, Jimmy Walker, right? Now, Jimmy Walker this year, in 19 starts, he made 1.4 million. I know this has a lot of, like a lot of money, but that was nothing. I think he was in the top 50. Like he just made the top 50. In the, in the majors this, this year, he was tied 29th the Masters. He missed the cut of the US Open. He missed the cut at the Open. No one would give this guy a chance coming into it. He suddenly had this funny beard. Um, yeah, who would have, who would have been Jimmy Walker? Well, first round 65, followed up by 66. This was just incredible golf. And then there was no game, sorry, no play whatsoever on the Saturday because of rain. He came back on the Sunday. He shot 68 and 67. He won the PGA Championship, his first ever major, which means a full clean sweep of first time winners in the majors this year. So he joins Danny Willett, Dustin Johnson, and Henrik Stenson. Stenson and Day and a whole host of really, really talented chasers were after Walker in this final round. But he had three birdies in the back nine, kept them all at bay, and there is your PGA champion. Pretty amazing, considering that um, he's a pretty dog shit year all round. But it was a cool course. The boldest role they were saying is a bit boring for majors, but it's a true old championship layout. 
and uh, it was actually very, very entertaining, the parts that I watched. Obviously, the rain delays are very frustrating as a fan, and there seems to be more of them happening, I think, now in the big tournaments. I don't know if that's got to do with El Nino or something like that, but whatever it is. Major champion for the first time is Jimmy Walker. On to the Olympics. Now, as you know, I'm doing a daily, daily countdown of uh, what's going on at the Olympics. A lot of <laughs> rather bizarre and screwed up stories. But... um We've got four days to go, so over the weekend, if in case you missed anything, just to give you a kind of um, catch-up of what's going on, there was a controlled explosion. Now, many press agencies are going with the salacious headline of Explosion in Maracanã Olympic Stadium. It was a controlled one. So you remember a while back, Man United were about to play some team in the Premier League, and some some dickhead left a, a, a dummy bomb in a dummy bomb experiment, but it was taken as the real thing. So they had to call off the match. They had to have a controlled explosion. Basically, they send a little robot in there, and it's all very above board. Same thing happened. It was alleged that there were toolboxes left in the stands in the American R. Someone identified it as a as a under, well, suspicious object, and it got blown up. But there was all more explosive information around the weekend. There was a fire in the Aussie... Um, Aussie compound of the of the athletes' village. Now, as, as you know, the Aussies were were not didn't go straight into it. They stayed in a hotel in the beginning before the thing was completely ready. And now, what's happened there is some work person, uh, there's various people just milling around that area, threw a cigarette into a pile of rubbish, and there was a fire. Fire sort of scare. Everyone was evacuated, and while they were being evacuated, uh, an Aussie had a laptop stolen, and there were three Zika-proof shirts. So interesting story in that obviously theft isn't great. And uh, this is what Kitty Steamer, whatever her name is. I forget, forget her last name, but it's quite interesting. Uh, but how the hell do you get a Zika-proof shirt? I mean, what is that? Is that chain mail? Because like, <laughs> if it's a who cares? It'll bite you on your hands or your wrists or whatever the shirt's not covering. So someone's lost their, their Zika-proof shirts. And uh final bit of bad news from the weekend was that the the sailing platform this really handsome platform that was built on the 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 verge of the water where people obviously um, moor and launch their boats from. Well, there was huge swells that came through the area and uh, 10-foot waves pounded this thing to submission. It's completely broken. It's completely screwed. To think it's taken years and years for anything to be built in Rio and now they've got to redo a sailing platform with all the four days to go. Good luck to the idle laborer who's going to have to be put out to do that. So not going so well with with Rio. Um, every day up until the start of the games, I've been putting out sort of Rio countdowns on the bounce of Ciro Zede. So you can see all kinds of things I put out there from um, Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce Jenner, all the way through to a guy who shot an arrow into a cauldron. Lots of interesting stuff from the Olympics there. So we won't get into the rugby just yet because, well, there's no point really. I mean, over the weekend... We could wax lyrically about the Lions being so fantastic. Um, in the scrums, they were just, they, they killed the Highlanders. And the Highlanders had one of the better scrums in the tournament, if not the best, according to the stats. And out wide, everywhere between, the Lions are just so many ways of scoring points. It's such a fascinating team to watch. And the Highlanders, yes, they've had the travel and all that kind of stuff, but they're not a crap side. They really aren't. They're, they're, they're solid. Uh, they know what to do. Of course, they're the defending champions. And the Lions just drilled them. 42-30. Very flattery scoreline to the Highlanders, though. Those tries and then came quite late. Um, Hurricanes versus the Chiefs. Chiefs played a very naive game against the Hurricanes to everyone in SA's disappointment because they won that it could have been a Lions final at the Ellis Park, but it was not to be. 23-6, the Hurricanes beat the Chiefs. And interestingly enough, Burden Barrett completely outshone um, Aaron Cruden 
So the All Black T- All Black squad for the Rugby Championship was announced today, and Cruden and Barrett are in there with uh, Lima Sopuanga. Those are your top three f- uh, fly-offs in New Zealand. But to say Barrett is a, there's no contest. Barrett's the best. He's just been amazing, and it was an absolute masterclass he showed there on Saturday. So that's going to be a final 9:35 SA time. So it's obviously going to be played in Wellington. Holding thumbs the weather's not going to be completely crap, and we can still have a big running affair for that final match. 9:35 Lions taking on the Hurricanes in Hurricane Land. Um, yeah, so that's your rugby. Cricket news, well, we'll get into that with, with Dennis in a little bit, but basically Sri Lanka absolutely pummeled Australia. They set them a target of two, 276. They were bowled out for more than 100 less than that, and it was very, very depressing. But at the same time, if you look at the form book, not so good for these Aussies. So um, that's pretty much your headlines for the weekend. I know there was Formula One, Hamilton won again, Rosberg cocked it up, uh, there was drama and pseudo-drama. Uh, so Hamilton's going to win, okay? Spoiler alert, it'll be exactly the same. Hamilton will win the world champs this year. That was kind of all the big stuff from the from the weekend. But one thing I do want to play before I get into, into Dan was, um, sorry, that didn't sound so good, I want to get to Dan's feature. The the skydiver, Luke Aikens. You hear, I've never heard this guy before, and I'm sure you haven't either. But this dude, right, he decided that to be a daredevil, as all daredevils, the good ones are, you've got to do something quite amazing and obviously borderline stupid. He reckoned, screw it, I'm jumping out of a plane. I'm jumping out of a plane with no parachute. Okay, it's not innocent enough. What's going to happen? It's got to be a catch. Does another plane catch him? No. He jumped from 25,000 feet and there is a net, 30... 30 by 30 meter net, okay, on the ground. So let's do the math there. 25,000 feet. Chance of hitting this net. I wouldn't say amazing. He's been guided down by four other guys. Four other skydivers, okay. And then he gets the net. He's in. There is a grandstand assembled. Now in the middle of absolutely nowhere, right? They're in the middle of the desert. From here it looked perfect. You've just witnessed history being made. Absolutely. The rest of his team hits so, the floor. as much as we all think, ugh, you know, we become so numb to any feat of, of anything nowadays, right? Because you think, oh, well, whatever, something I'll do to my time. This guy, just, just, just let this sink in. This dude jumped out of an aeroplane with no parachute that hit a 30 square meter net on the floor from 25,000 feet. Any manner of things could have gone wrong, right? Sidewinds. Um, thermals, gulf streams, whatever you want to call it, birds even, and there is a, a symbol about a hundred people on the ground. The things that could have gone wrong here—it's just it's like my mind, his mind's boggles this one. But he did it. So Luke Aikens, this is as good for me as that—the um, guy who died out of um, a capsule from space. Just think the balls you got to have to jump out of a plane with no parachute, and to know you got to hit this target because let's be honest, he's wearing a helmet, but he's dead if he misses this thing. And he hit the left side of it too, so <laughs> he must be thinking, okay, cool. I'd love to know what this guy's going to do from here because I reckon he can kind of retire. Yeah, so that, that really, I thought that was fascinating. I watched that about 10 times this morning. If you go into the Bounce of today, today, right now, you can see that video. It's just fantastic. Good on you, Luke Aikens. You're a crazy son of a bitch, but that is just entertaining and bloody enjoyable. Right, so we're going to get on to... Um, it's Dan. We're going to a very interesting topic to get through today. Uh, later on in the show, we will have um, uh, Dennis. Dennis from Australia, who may be actually sharing a bit more with us on Cliff Central in the future. Dennis is quite a big deal, actually. And uh, he started off as a Richie Benno impersonator on Twitter. 
Um, but, you know, he's a real big deal, and he's doing really good things. So we like Dennis. He's got good insights, and he might be featuring more in the channel, but we'll keep posted on that. But first, we've got Dan in the flesh right here. Morning, Dan. Good morning. How's it going? Pretty good. Did you manage to watch that clip of that skydiver? I didn't. I haven't seen it yet. No, but I actually heard a, a podcast about it this morning. I mean, that's the guy's absolutely nuts. Well, I tell you what, Felix Baumgartner. Baumgartner. I yeah, think that was his name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's. I, I reckon he trumps it. Huh? I'm happy. I'm happy that he's done that, and uh, good for him. Right, Dan. Normally, you've got some fantastic um, topics. In fact, you, you always do. And normally, it's, well, you do. Yeah. But today. I'm going for another another uh, attempt at an adjective and an introduction. War and sport. War and sports. Now, I have long believed, because I love that show Spartacus, right? Right. Because there was no sport in those days. Yeah. You literally just killed people. Generally, poor people got killed a lot. And every now and again, they threw a line into the mix. So sure. I've so I saw this topic. I thought, great, I want to talk about this, and we've got extra time today, so we've got full reign to go for it. Cool. So you kick it off. I'm I'm fascinated to see where this goes. Right. Well, I mean, I've I've always, as you say, it's always been interesting the relationship between sports and war, and how war is is kind of seen rather sport is kind of seen as a replacement for war. Yeah. Um. It, it elicits the same emotions, and you know, it's 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 been it's been something that that's obviously been rattling around in in our heads for a long time, but. When this Russian doping scandal came out, I thought it was just such a perfect link between sports and war and how, for me, this, you know, we don't have, we don't have great powers marching on each other. We don't have Russian, Russia lining up and going and taking on Germany or Britain fighting France or whatever the case is. But for me, this state sponsored doping in sports and and if sport is, is a metaphor for war, for me, this is a 21st century, century imperial march by, by the Russian government to kind of plant a flag on the continent and on the games and, and in sport in general and say, we are a great power. This is how we, we force ourselves as a great power. And I, I, I don't know. It's just, it's so, I mean, there's so many metaphors and so many links that you can call, that you can draw, but I just think this, the state sponsored doping is such a great conversation point for, for sports and war. It's also just so Russian, huh? It's so Russian. I mean, if you were to say at the beginning of this year, there is going to be a massive story about state-sponsored doping. Who's it going to be? Everyone would say Russia. Russia or China. But, but probably def- yeah. definitely Russia. And, and you know what? When, when you, when you hear the athletes, I mean, um, cause obviously all, all the, all the ath- athletics have been banned, right? Um, track and field athletes from Russia. Yeah. And the BBC was, was chatting to the world champion hurdler, whose name I can't remember right now. And she, uh, I think it was Claire Balding or one of them, and and she asked asked him, "Who do you blame?" And he was like, "Ah, oh, you know, I don't really know who to blame, but if I had to pick someone, it would be the IAA for WADA." And the and the person doing the interview asked him, "Do you not blame the Russian authorities at all?" And and he was baffled by this question. He he couldn't understand how anyone could blame the Russian government. And Putin himself has has said that this is a scandal and this will create a schism and and this is just another. Another example of politics interfering with sports, but the the blind like you know, the blinkers that these Russian people have, it's astounding. It's yeah, it's, it's, it's it's kind of concerning though because you think that they must be so indoctrinated into stuff within that country, right? And maybe a lot of them just believe that they're not doping because the coach says so, and the coach is right, and the West is always the enemy. I just think I just think with with this, and you know. I'm no expert on Russia and I've never been to Russia and, and my, my experience with Russia, with Russian people is on, on a beach in Phuket, which is, which is never a great place to meet Russians. Um, 
But it just kind of seems like this, as you say, indoctrination is a great word that it's not cheating if we're doing it. And, and the putting Russia at the world stage and doing everything we can to win really trumps any ethical questions that, that may, you know, ethical barriers that we may cross as long as Russia is doing well and Russia is winning. Yeah, it's the whole thing about like general morale in the country. I mean, people get very into it, and the whole patriotism around sport is quite crazy. But going going into the Olympics now, um, on the back of something like this, I mean, like, where do we go from here? Is the Olympic movement itself threatened? I mean, well, we, we we can all say that ah, it'll brush on the cover, but this is something a bit bigger, there, isn't it? Without a doubt, I I, I think I mean. Never mind all all the controversy around Rio and all the rest. If if this was, if 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 something like this happened at London, which you know by all accounts was a really successful, smoothly run operation, the this it's the state sponsored side of it of this doping that that really sticks with me because I mean yes, we we got dopers and we'll always have dopers and we're never going to get rid of that unfortunately and that is that is that is an awful side of sport but it's the fact that this was government sanctioned. Um, and how it's a representation of of a you know an ethos and an ideology of of a collective you know people and, and and that is coming from the top. This really really is is something odd and 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 you know kind of draconian and 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 really kind of reminds you of a time where these schisms existed. And and I don't I don't really know how we can move on from here because you you kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Okay, you can ban everybody, ban Russia. Which is what a lot of people were calling for, wider included. Or you can, you know, cherry pick the people that have done it, but then you kind of set a bad tone that this kind of thing can go unpunished. And jeez, I, I really, really don't know. It's it's such a such a tricky one because as I said, it's it's not the doping, it's the state sponsored doping that yep. that makes this gross. So what do you reckon Russia's next move is? I mean, do they even have a next move other than just taking it on the chin and trying to compile? I think, you know, as, as you say, we come back to the word indoctrinated. I think that they're just gonna, I, I truly think that and from the stuff that I'm reading and, and from, from Putin's response and from the response from his government, they feel hard done by. They, they, you know, when you say what's their next move, I, I think they dumbfounded that, not that they were caught, but dumbfounded that they were caught and this was the, the reaction from the world. I, I think that they were expecting people to be like, well, you know, that's just how it is, right? This is just how Russia does things, whatever. What their next move is, I think they're going to just keep doing it. I think they're going to find new ways of 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 cheating. Well, look, it, it is kind of dodgy, and yes, there are stereotypes. Um, there are stereotypes, and there are things that people always kind of hark back on. But now, with the FIFA World Cup coming up, right now we've had again touching on Russia, and this is no no way as me victimizing them, but the. They're dodgy. Look at the football hooliganism, right? right. State, state-funded doping. And now we've got another world event that's going to their shores. They're also completely homophobic. <laughs> can't, can't really find too much positive with them. But do you reckon now this is another platform where Putin could try again, assert his dominance on this, this time frame? You know what? All, all those three things that you just mentioned, um, obviously the, I mean, FIFA knew that the World Cup's going to Russia before the vote happened. Obviously that was corrupt. The state sponsored doping, government sanctioned cheating, and the football hooliganism was sanctioned, but I mean, the, the minister, the minister of sports said that this was just another way of Russian males asserting their masculinity on a, on a, on a West that had got soft by handling gay pride parades. I mean, mm. this is, this is all supported by the government. This is all tied in with, with that ethos of, of the relationship between sports and war. And, and, you know, Russia's not fighting America in the West with guns and missiles. I mean, you know, 
not directly at least the whole Syria thing. But this is this sport for Russia and, and for many countries is a way to assert yourself ideologically in a way that in the past was done on battlefields. And, and this is just, you know, the, those three things that you mentioned are just all examples of how sports is, is a, has now become a replacement for war. Yeah, it's kind of depressing in that respect. But now, if it was to ever get to a stage of cold warness where we see like America or someone else having to use the same thing, because there's no real counterface measure, right? Like, what's America going to go do now? Go win clean golds? It doesn't look like anything. Yeah, but for all we know, this Russia just the ones that have been caught. I mean, and as I say in the article, um, we got to we got to take anything that Putin says with a grain of sa- grain of sand, with a grain of salt. Um, but this, this, the, the reaction is political. The, 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 the banning of Russia and singling out, singling out Russia. I mean, Gatland is, is competing and he's an American. W- would. Two time doper Gatland is his full name. Do you yeah. know? Yeah, exactly. Sorry to use his full name. So this is political and the reaction is political. And, and for all we know, Britain are doing it. For all we know, um, America are doing it. Who, who knows how far this goes? And, and I, I just think that this is just an example of, of that metaphor that we're talking about rather okay. than the only example. This actually really is a fascinating point of view because, okay, again, we've ascertained that the Russians are dodgy, but blanket bans are quite difficult as soon as you look, hang on a second, Marion Jones, American, right. Gatlin, American. Uh, there's been others. There's definitely been others and there will be others in the future. Sure. So, as much as the thing is, but like, it's obviously the bad press around Sochi was the, the hole in the wall mm. and those kind of things. So when the McLaren report came out, you're like, okay, cool. The guy's got a point. He's done his research. These guys also get banned. The blanket ban is going to be difficult and it's a counteroffensive. I'd like to actually take this conversation to a slightly different angle now. Sure. When we're talking about war, right? Mm-hmm. Look at the most war ravaged areas in the world. If we look at Syria right now and look at those countries there, we look at the rapid rise of ISIS, um, Islamic extremists. None of these guys are big sportsmen, right? There's right. no real sport being happened there. There's right. a, look what Afghanistan has done through their cricket team to create unity, which is very anti-Taliban, right? And Taliban, they banned cricket. They banned everything, basically. I'm sure they banned laughing. I'm sure they banned heavy breathing, whatever they did. But now here is an example of how sport has come back through the, the ashes of, oh, I don't know what you call it, just general dickness of what these guys are doing. <laughs> and they have shown how sport can obviously conquer these things. Now, when you've got nothing, no infrastructure, um, no societal um, morals, issues, standpoints, obviously you can't get any sport in. But I reckon this is the only way you can maybe get around things. I'm not just saying because I'm a sports person. Right. But by implementing sport in these areas and getting them into it, maybe this is actually the, the new way of, of counterterrorism. Sport. Well, I mean, South Africa's, South Africa's the best example of that, right? We, we know how powerful sport can be as an as a, as a tool for nation for nation building but as you say sport can't exist in in these places and you know i it's 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 no coincidence i would say that that uh sport doesn't exist in in, in the war-torn places and and uh you know the, the places where sport thrives are you know relatively peaceful because like sports are a great leveler in that it gives you healthy competition, so you can get your frustrations out. No one dies eventually, but you've got something to play for, and there's a win and loss, and there's a camaraderie that gets sent in there. Now, to use an example of how sport in war times, okay? Um, by the way, w- whenever we talk about these things, go on to conquersport.com, and there's a blog section there. All of Dan's articles are there, one off the other. They're, they're relentlessly good reads. Um, World War One, the football game between the Germans and the English. Christmas Day truce, yeah. 
Now, this is another example, okay? These guys are in trenches. They're killing each other. This is one of the most horrible wars ever because you're stuck in trenches. It's not like you were running around or in tanks or anything cool like that. They were getting foot rot. They were eating whatever they could find in muddy trenches, okay? It was mm-hmm. horrible. But they managed to get aside for a game of football. So here is another example of how maybe that could be thrown in and these war-torn areas can really be uplifted. Right, you know, and... and I include that, I include that photo. It's, it's, I don't, I don't mention it in the article, but that photo is just one of the most, in, in, you know, incredible photos of, you know, humankind. And, and it just shows how even in the most atrocious conditions, the human spirits and the, our love of sports really endures. And what, what's interesting about this is that, as you say, sport doesn't thrive in, in war-torn places. After this Christmas Day truce, the officers on both sides. Who won, sh- by the way? The football, uh, the German, Germans. Yeah. yeah, probably on penalties, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the officers on both sides ensure that this never happened again because as you say when you're competing in sports it, it doesn't really matter who the president is it doesn't it doesn't matter about the politics it doesn't matter about what's going on sport wins you know and that old cliche as long as, as long as football wins in the day the officers knew this and if they were playing sport with each other they weren't hating each other and you need to hate each other for war to thrive and I think that that hatred really does manifest itself in sports and which is why we have rivalries and which is another metaphor for between sport and war and you kind of need to hate your opposition to beat them or so so some people have you think and i think that comes back to to this russian state doping russia wants to win but on the world stage but they also really really want to beat everybody because their ideology at least politically and on the, on the world stage is 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 both love and hate, a love for us and a hate for them, right? Which is which is a parallel with war, and I think a way that you we could do away with the state-sponsored doping is if we return to the original ideal of the Olympic Games, which was that nations wouldn't compete, that individual athletes would compete, and you wouldn't take out doping if individual athletes were competing. But if there was no national medal table, Russia would have nothing to. There would be no reason for state-sponsored doping because there would be no incentive for that. Because Russia wouldn't wouldn't be competing against America. It could be this athlete competing against athlete that athlete, and you could live wherever you want in the world. And maybe opening ceremony, you could all walk out together holding hands, or you can go out as, as sports or age groups or whatever. You can divide them up. But but as soon as you divide athletes up by countries, you create an environment where state-sponsored doping. It's almost an inevitable step, right? It, it, it makes it, you can understand why Russia did this, even though we, it's, it's deplorable and we can criticize them. It's not hard to understand why this happened, and I think understanding why it happened can lead to how we can ensure that this doesn't happen again. Yeah, the interesting point about the individuals for the Olympics it could be something to look into in the future. That's another discussion to have. But now I want to take it to another angle as well. Okay, so people are angry in this world. They are disenfranchised. They are poverty stricken. They are wronged through other people they are oppressed there's various reasons to get out there and just be fucking angry okay? yeah, yeah football football hooliganism sure uh look through all of europe really now we touched on it just now about the russians but like uh i think i was seeing a fight i think it was dynamo kiev versus someone else but like it's gang stuff okay the football secondary mm. but these guys come out and it's war under the auspices of football fan kind of things but right. it's basically 60 guys laying into another 60 guys and it's a huge fight you know i think as well that like to use the metaphor from earlier is that we as humans are just generally quite horrible we generally are just dreadful beings and we're always very destructive and we want to fight so 
again, it's almost like we see human nature coming out in sport in various degrees. We've got the controlled aggression, okay? So that's sport in the field. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the common hatred, which is overflowing. Like, again, do you reckon there's ever going to be a, any sort of solution to football hooliganism? Or is this just in, indented into the DNA of a lot of these people? You know what? In, in some ways, we can maybe be thankful for for football hooliganism and by extension sport in general because if it wasn't for football hooliganism you know this anger coalescing around a game they'd be going in the streets and killing each other for other ideological reasons you know at least now you know the cops are going to be in the area right, to so kind of separate them from the rest thank you know thank god for for sport because if it wasn't for sport, we would just find an, uh, any reason to hate each other. You wearing a, a, a grey shirt, I'm wearing a blue shirt, now we want to fight each other. You know, if you're wearing a grey shirt of your team and I'm wearing the blue shirt of my team, at least we can go and coalesce around that. So, you know, as, 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 I, as much as I hate football hooliganism, it, keep it controlled. Maybe have, have a designated football hooliganism area at, at grounds where if you want to go be a hooligan, you got to pay an extra five rand or whatever it is, five euros. And you go and be a hooligan there. You can you get you, the fans out of the fight zone. Right. Exactly. Fans out <laughs> in a fight zone. You can, and, and, and as I said, I mean, I've, I never, I never really thought about it this way, but you know, thank God for football hooliganism because I think Oaks just want to punch each other. I think I really, really think they do. Yeah. I guess so. Harry. It's better, it's better to formalize things. It's like a whole thing, you know, keep your enemies close and your friend, your friends close, your enemies closer. Right. By appreciating the fact that people are going to kill each other no matter what. We can't get away from that. The history of war has shown us this, right? We as humans, we haven't really evolved that much. We wear fancier clothes and we drive better cars and we eat fancier things. So I think we're still quite shit. And, and I, th- and I think, you know, uh, Coming back to the whole sport and war thing, it's no coincidence that, you know, as, as, as terrible as this world is right now, it is the best it's ever been. Let, let's be honest, it's, it's safer for the, for the average person around the world. And it ha- it's been getting better, and I, th- I think you could easily make the case that it's been getting better since sport became more professional and, and, yep. and more accessible. Yep, that is a very good point. I had one more. There was, there was another tier to where I was going to go in this argument. Sorry, discussion. Um, as you can see, I prepped the show really, really well. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, boxing. Okay. There we go. The, the actual physical fighting of it. So then we've got sport and war and we've actually got sports that are war. Mm. Now, again, like, is there going to be, do you reckon that we've seen boxing dwindle a little bit? We've seen the rise of MMA and these other kind of fighting things. Right. Now, is this a sport that you foresee to become bigger as far as alternative things? Because I mean, boxing, it's like getting to the point now where, it's just not glamorous enough. It's just not marketable enough anymore. Right. Or are we going to see the rise and the rise, continue to rise, like UFC and all those kind of things because of the whole, what we talk about, people hating each other? It, you know, I, I would I would say that if boxing was declining without the rise of another combat sport, then I could maybe say that, that we are moving away from our, you know, yearning for, for that combat sport. But because boxing is declining and UFC is rising, I would say that, UFC is just simply replacing it, and and yeah. I I wouldn't I don't know if it's more violence or less violence. Some, you know, there's arguments on both sides. I mean, it looks more violent, but apparently the injuries sustained are worse in boxing. I, I'm I don't really know. I'm an expert on that, but yeah, there's a lot of like comas and deaths, whereas with UFC, it's like it's called off when someone gets properly PK. Do you know what I mean? So so, but we are clearly still still enthusiastic for people to punch each other, and you know we we. Not, not even, not even in that. I mean, I've heard, I've heard cricket matches be described as war and, and, and tennis matches be described as, 
you know, being equated to two powerhouses on, on a battlefield fighting against each other. I mean, tennis and, and cricket could be arguably the least combative sports in, on the, especially tennis. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> so our, our understanding of, of, of sports is so tied in with war and, and I think, I, I don't think that's a, that's a bad, necessarily a bad thing. And I think the more we, we speak about, Sports as a replacement for war that's healthy, where we do have to be careful of it is, is to use the same jargon because the truth is in war people lose their lives. And, and, and in the article I, I interview a psychologist for the US Navy SEALs whose, whose name I had to keep hush hush for the first time in my career, which I felt quite, oh, cool. quite nice. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he was saying, look, he, he also consults for, for sports teams and, and he speaks to the coaches and the athletes and, and, doesn't want captains to be called generals he doesn't want their athletes to be called troops he doesn't want a, a line of scrimmage in football to be called no man's land because the implications are that you're equating the consequences to each other and 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 that's where the metaphor falls short yes we can they elicit the same emotions of us versus them and passion and desire and, and sacrifice and all the rest but where where this metaphor does fall short is is the consequences of sports and war yeah, just, um, well, look, I think the moral of the story is here, Dan. Before you go, I want to talk Lions with you. So we're going to just pinch this off right now. Great. I think, bottom of the line, more sport, less war. Well, ideally, right? That's pretty much it. Yeah. Politicians can agonize over all this crap forever and ever. Um, the United Nations can come together and talk about stuff, but more sport, less war. Sure. It should be airdropping sports kits, not maize meal, just maize meal. Get the sport everywhere in the world. The Are you running on Wednesday, Ben? Can we wait for you on Wednesday? Uh, no, I'm not running this year. Oh, damn. I still got so much on. Maybe, you know, maybe four years' time. time right. Maybe. I don't know. But, um, yeah, so more sport, less war. Uh, and, and as Dan's written out, um, comprehensively here, this is the only way to get forward in life, I think. But did you hear about, um, Philip and Doe? No. Uh, his boxing license was taken away. Um, Spoo just, um, reminded us of a Twitter. His boxing license was taken away and he beat the living crap out of the administrators as a result. Wow. Okay. I mean, look, it's just the pieces I picked up with the story this morning so far. Jeez. So, um, yeah, it's, again, people are angry. There's a guy, you're depriving the man of sport and you get a beat down. Right, right. So therefore, <laughs> that ties in with our, with our moral of the story. Okay. So I need wow. to get into the lines with you because I know you're a Lions fan, right? Big time. Right. Chances of this weekend in your objective sporting mind. What are we looking at? No, they're going to get 20. You're going to get 20. I, my, my heart says we'll scrape it, but. The travel, you know, the best defensive team, which is the Hurricanes, you know, best defensive teams win finals. Bowden Barrett's a monster. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a tough ground. It's, it's probably going to be snowing, raining sideways. I would love to see them click, but geez, I, I mean, even, even if they go there and get 50, the, the Lions are sensational. I mean, there's, they, they can, they can go out there and, and chuck the ball around and just play Lions rugby, you know, Throw it in their own twenty-two, run it from from their own goal line. They they can do it, get a hiding, and still and still be the best team in the tournament this year. Well, the way I see it is that if you actually go through the entire tournament and you realize what an absolutely incredible effort it is to finish top of the New Zealand table, I know people are always going to crap on it and say, "Oh, but you're not going to it up. You send a second string team to Jaguars." Sure, sure. But the way this conference system has worked out, I think this is the fairest final. I, I mean, and uh, as a big Lions fan, I think Lions themselves might actually admit it. This is the final everybody wanted to see. Right. And the, and the New Zealand team deserves to have it there. They do. It's as simple as that. Yeah, they've, they've been better. And as you say, to top the New Zealand team, that must have been fantastic. And I mean, the, the Lions could do it. I, I read an article by, um, Mark Yohani, if 
I'm pronouncing his surname wrong, I'm sure I am. Kiohane. Yeah, one of, one of them. Mark. Right. So he, uh, he, he wrote an article about how the Lions could win. And yeah, sure, they could win, but they're probably not going to. Well, if you, if you look, this is the whole thing. If you've got a level playing field, which you don't already because the Lions are in a plane right now and the Hurricanes are chilling. Um, level playing field as far as weather is concerned, nice still nights and the field's not too, too heavy. I reckon mm. it obviously helps the Lions. Lions have got a bloody good scrum. You know their set pieces are good. Um, Warren Whiteley not going to play by looks of things. He is in the squad, but I don't think he's going to play. It's going to be a massive risk if he does. And if he does, maybe an hour at tops. They've got a good loose trio. That backline's fantastic. Yeah. But you just, as again, you, the key elements here, and this is why I wanted to ask you because you summed it up in 25 seconds. Best defensive team, Burden Barrett, form of his life. Properly, yeah. the way that he made Cruden his bitch over the weekend, right, I mean, right. There was only really one, one showed player. him up, eh? yeah. He really, really showed him up. And the fact that the Hurricanes team can actually have Julian Sevilla on the bench, and that wasn't just to like teach him a lesson. It's just that they've got so much quality in the backs there. No, they're class. They they really are class. But you know, if if, if the Lions, as you say, if that if that set piece can work and it and it's not too wet, and we can give it to those guys out wide. And, you know, Yankees has to have a great game again. Faf has to have a great game again. I mean, we, ha- we, for, for the Lions to win, they have to be great. And the Hurricanes have to be a little bit off, I think. But, jeez, I mean, well done for the Lions. And just truly, ju- I mean, I don't want to sound like a, like I'm already accepting defeat. But as a Lions fan, just getting to the final yeah. is fantastic. And, and they, th- and they definitely deserve it. Yeah. It's a massive turnaround. And obviously people, again, they're going to be pissed off about that Jaguars game. But this is this is an amazing, amazing achievement because you just know this team has learned so much from this year. And next year, I mean, the Super Rugby schedule is stupid. At some stage, they'll have to have an inconvenient travel. Right. Fortunately, it's the final. Exactly. I mean, so, and three years. I mean, screw either way. Three years ago, I was I was at the the, the playoff game at, at, at Ellis Park with the Kings, and they they won it. They won the, over two legs. They won by three points. I mean, we were three points away from from not being in Super Rugby for another couple of years. And to think that in, in the space of three years they 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 comp- they have got a chance of winning the final is I mean it's 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 ridiculous. That's yeah, crazy. All right, Dan. Um, quick little plug of all your stuff. Uh, see Sabu Majikli, um, so he's one of our cricket commentators, right? Contributors here on the show. He really wants to start reading your stuff, so I've given him the link. Where else can we find you? Cool. Well, you can find us um, on Conquer Sport, C O N Q A Sport dot com. We've also got Twitter and Facebook at Conquer Sport and Conquer Sport on on. Uh, on uh, Facebook and yeah, we we also host a couple of really cool events. We got our we got a great one, our, our flagship coming up in October. It's the Elite Sports Summit, um, where we bring a whole bunch of the best minds in the in sport industry from around the world together. So really check us out there. Um, otherwise, just follow us on Twitter and Facebook for articles and all that info. Cool. Well, Dan's got a feature here once a month, but uh, he's got so much to talk about at the moment. We're actually going to have him back next week. So if you enjoyed that feature, which I'm sure you had, next week again. And then there'll be another little break. Dan, thank you so much. We need to get into cricket Thanks, now cool. with Dennis Friedman, who informs me he's on a train. Okay, so this not going to be. This might not be the greatest line, but uh, just to kind of intro him while I while I find him somewhere in a train. Uh, here is the Australians getting bundled out and Hereth getting the final wicket here. Bowling. Hereth takes the final wicket. His fifth of the innings, and Sri Lanka have sealed a most remarkable win. Bowled out for just 117 in the first innings. 117 bowled out in the first innings, and Aussie still lost. Dennis, you with us? Hey, Ben, how are you, mate? Great, what a good line. You told me you're going to be in a train, and it sounds great. I am on a train, so I apologize if it gets a bit noisy or um, some swear words filter through, but I can't control that. 
Yeah, that's not no no biggie. Now, when this when this <laughs> test match when this test match started, uh, the Aussies are obviously the number one test team. They've got South Africa's mace. Um, you know, the big deal in the test arena. They went and played a Sri Lankan team made up mostly of school kids and uh, people who have Jaya Warden's autograph. And when they got bowled out for 119, <laughs> I just thought, well, ugh, should we even bother watching the rest of this test? Turned away for a day. Suddenly there's some guy no one's heard of. He's, I got 150 odd. What the hell happened there? I mean, is it the bowlers or is it Steve Smith said the batsman? Oh, well, it's just so many things, mate. To be honest, um, I actually think that the squad that Australia took was, was wrong. Um, combined with the fact that, uh, they probably underestimated Sri Lanka a bit and they, and, uh, they showed them who's boss and to, to take it the next step, maybe the gap between number one and number seven is not, not as big as what we thought. Well, it is quite a thing. Number one and number seven, they've just been to England, have Sri Lanka, where they didn't fare too well. Hmm. Um, like, really not so much. I always thought when Angelo Matthews went from being talented to being their best player was always an issue for them as far as depth's concerned. But they, they have really pulled it together. But the bigger issue here is, I mean, obviously, it's Sri Lanka's second win of all time against Australia in tests, if I'm not mistaken. So everyone can talk about that. But the bigger issue here is just Australia's track record in Asia. I had no idea it was this crap. I mean, what is it? Eight, eight yeah. tests in a row now? They've won one test in uh, 10 years in Asia. Wow. Um, having, having said that, they haven't played in Bangladesh. So we're a bit unlucky there. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's... It, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, look, it's not good, um, and, and you know, it raises a bigger question. It, it took us a while to work out that T20 teams have to be different from ODI teams, and if you go back to the '90s and the 2000s, it took us a while to work out that ODI, ODI teams are different from Test teams. Maybe it's got to the stage, and I think it is at the stage where we, we work out that teams that you choose for Asia have to be different than teams you take to South Africa, or teams that you bring to Australia, or teams that you bring to England, even though it's the same format of the game. And if you look what Australia's continually done, they did it when they lost 4-0 in India a few years back, and they did it in the UAE when they lost 2-0 to Pakistan. They load up in Asia with uh, all these dibbly dobbly all-rounders, bowling all-rounders, and um, they don't take many spinners. Um, you know, this time they've taken two spinners, Nathan Lyon and, and Steve O'Keefe. Steve O'Keefe's gone down. They've now brought in a, another debutante, but they had no backup spinner on the squad. And But they've stacked it with fast bowlers. They've got... Uh, Jackson Bird, Mitchell Stark, Hazelwood, Coulter Nile, um, Moises Enriques is another, and Mitch Marshall, all sort of quick bowlers. Um, yet if you look at the history of Sri Lanka, they've only ever produced one quick bowler of note in their whole history, which was Chaminda Vass. And it's not because those guys can't bowl quick, because the pitchers aren't built for quick bowlers. So they, they do what Sri Lanka did this time and play four spinners and look at the result. And Australia just haven't been uh, clever enough or smart enough to uh, take the risk and uh, it's not even a risk. Just do what's sensible and uh, pick a team for the conditions rather than a team that might win at the Gabba. It's a very good point. And as a South African, I'm going to take this moment with both hands and say, well, even the Proteas learned this trick a long time ago. Yes, they got dicked by India last time, but that was a dodgy pitch. Now, is it is it domestic four-day, your Sheffield Shields, um, I think it is, is it a, a case that yeah. they're now preparing for international conditions enough and it's very much just playing the, the, those, those hard and fast uh, Aussie pitches? Which have been receptive to spin in the past, oh. I must say. Is, is there not enough happening there? Not enough focus there that you may be lacking in the in the spin bowling and the facing of, of batsmen. Uh, look, I don't believe so. If you listen to Rod Marsh, who's the chairman of selectors, um, you know he's, he's sent Australia A to, to the subcontinent continually. 
Um, the uh, National Academy in Brisbane actually has Dr. Pitchers set up at a mate for spin. Okay. Uh, if you look at the leading wicket takers, if you look at the leading, leading wicket takers in the Shield the last two years, it's been uh, Nathan, uh, not Nathan, it's been Farwood Armin. Um, Steve O'Keefe's been up there. So it's been Spinnings leading the attack. Um, Ian Chappell made a good point today. He said uh, the part of the problem is that we're not teaching kids young enough. And so by the time they hit 21, 22, 23, and they're playing representative cricket, the first time they're facing decent spinners, it's too late. Your technique is already sorted. That's a very good point, yeah. Yeah, you look at the subcontinent kids, they're brought up playing street kit cricket against guys with wrists that turn 360 degrees. (laughs) And... uh, So, look, maybe it's just as simple as that. Um, you know, you bring um, an Indian team or a Sri Lankan team over to the WACA and they don't do very well because they're not brought up on bouncy pitches and facing Mitch Johnson. We take uh, teams that are brought up on those type of pitches to, to gall and to candy and we get a different result. Maybe it's just as simple as that. I think it is. and I, I mean, I, I didn't think about that. That's a really good point. I know, like as you say, there's, a, there's academy teams that are going to the subcontinent more and more now. But a lot of them, I know from a South African perspective, they'll send promising spinners over. They won't necessarily focus too much on promising batsmen to go learn that technique. Um, but where is Farwood? Yeah. Where, where is Ahmed for, for your boys? Is he injured at the moment or is he still proving his, his metal, so to speak? No, he should be ready for selection, but uh, they haven't picked him. They've picked John Holland, uh, who, will, who will debut uh, Victorian, and, and, which is a bit disappointing, to be honest, because I think if you're going to um, send spinners into the subcontinent, you don't, that's probably not the place you want to debut for an Australian spinner. You'd probably rather debut at the Gabba or, or the SCG. I think sure. you need to send, in your words, made a bit of a hard bastard, someone that's been around a bit, and uh, Farwood would slot right in there and would be comfortable in the conditions. He's 36 now. I think they've seen enough. Um, nothing's going to fluster and you won't be um, bothered by playing a debut test and I think you get a better result exactly I mean if you've learned nothing yet from the, the brilliance of Imran Tahir coming into the Proteus fold I mean you guys literally <laughs> do not deserve success with this this, this hard headedness so um, Dennis I'm going to let you get off because I know you're on your way home after a long day of toiling um, but just finally the rest of the series do you reckon your boys will bounce back or is this actually going to be a, a, a titanic tussle from here on in uh, look, I think it's the batsmen uh, just got a bit more patience. We saw the, the record longest um, zero-run partnership in the history of Test cricket. So, um, those of the guys can last out there. I think it's the batsmen need a bit more patience. Um, Australia should get over the line the next few tests, but uh, they don't have shown they don't have the patience at the moment. So, who knows? Yeah, well, it's a fair point, Dennis. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, look forward to actually watching this Test series, and we'll keep the banter up from there. And thanks for joining us on your commute home. There's uh, Dennis from Australia. We caught him on the train, so apologies for the line. Did feel a bit, a little bit muffled than usual because Dennis always is the best Skype line out of all our guests. So that's pretty much it for the bounce show today. We have um, the discussion with Dan. I mean, like, there's a reason why I have certain guests for you, and I know they don't change all that often. But these are the guys that I really do trust, and people who I know have tremendous insights. And the great thing is, when they're on, the show feels really like sophisticated because they're so clever. So catch that that's the full chat with Dan if you missed it, if you're listening live now. Uh, otherwise, the podcast is always available, cliffcentral.com or on the bounce.co.za. You can get everything on there. And like I said, on the blog this week and last week, I was counting down the Olympics, which is only four days away now. So there was all kinds of really cool videos that I found, dug up from the archives there. And uh, just the usual stuff on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Follow the Bounce, uh, Instagram at The Bounce, and uh, Facebook as well. You can follow The Bounce there. These are all good things. Big sporting week ahead with the Lions versus the Hurricanes. And unfortunately, the gut is always going to say the Hurricanes are going to win this. But I'm just hoping in one of those rare, beautiful sporting stories. We've seen it with Leicester. 
We've seen it with various teams throughout the last two years. Um, there's some great sporting stories to be had out there. And golf. Uh, we've got the Olympics coming up, obviously, with the golf there. And then we've got the Ryder Cup in September. So there's so much still to look forward to. We are now in August. We're officially into that full-on second half. We're scooting away from winter down here in the Southern Hemisphere. So happier, happy days. Um, there was more about cricket last week. I went to the CSA Awards, which were really good. And I must commend Cricket South Africa on that. It was a fantastic event. I went to the Cricket SA 25-year uh, anniversary, where they celebrated 25 years of Cricket South Africa. Of course, um, South Africa was in political isolation for so long. So 1991-92 is when they first got back on the scene. So it was commemorating from the moments from there onwards. And I got to see and meet a whole bunch of interesting people, uh, even even some players on top of that. So I, I think as much as South Africans, we do um, sort of moan about the, the, the state of SA cricket and what's going on and obviously the frailties when it comes to World Cup time. There is still so much to be proud of as, as a South African cricket fan. And I think there's so many great players, there's so many great stories. And every now and again, I think we should just go back and really reflect on these because we have so much to be grateful for, I think is the right term, as a, as a cricketing nation. Uh, and then finally, I must wrap up by saying this last weekend, I went on a golf tour with um, some guys I met recently. And we played down at um, in Paris, which is on the Vol River. Played Vol de Grace and, uh, and Paris, the actual course. Uh, Vol de Grace, you can see there is something there. Nick Price designed. It's quite cool. But the staff were as pleasant as athletes foot. Um, you, you never knew where you were going on the golf course. It was very basic in that respect. So it, it isn't as, as great as I was hoping to be. But Paris, if you're ever in the area, you've got to go play this golf course. It was simply fantastic. There's just the Vol River and all kinds of other tributaries around there. So you constantly, you're surrounded by water. Take a few balls, take a few more balls than usual. But what a, an incredible golf course. I've played now 80 of the top 100 golf courses in this, in this country. And I was absolutely blown away by the layout of this place. It's really fun. It's a really great fair golf course. And, um, yeah, you'll see, I'll be posting about this and I'll be posting about the car that I drove down there, the BMW 640 diesel Grand Coupe. Perhaps one of the, I'm just going to say actually probably the best car ever driven for so many different ways. So you've got that to look forward to this coming up this week on the bounce. Also, there's a great holiday destination, which I uncovered for you last week. So look up for that as well. Uh, basically just stay on the bounce as soon as today. That's what I'm getting at here while I waffle towards the end, but we must leave right now. Uh, big week ahead for more sports for me this week just catch me on the Gareth Cliff show every Monday to Friday and that is 6 until 9am so we've got a lot, of go- lot going on there for your daily updates otherwise catch you back next Monday have a great sporting week and go Lions this is cliffcentral.com